church, I'll ask you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 15. We made our way to the book of Romans this week and uh, in a very timely fashion as we begin this season of Advent, but also very timely in the events of these last few days. In the face of such heartache as we have felt these last few days, the job of a pastor is clear-cut, to speak the truth of God's Word into the hearts and minds of the people of God, that they may know and see and rejoice in God's rule, reign, and power in Christ. And I praise God for His providential purposes and His timeless Word that in the face of such heartache, I did not have to change one thing about my sermon this morning in order to speak that very truth. This sermon was ready before the events of Friday evening, which took the life of our brother Dave. But I think, again, as I said, it's oh so timely, not simply to give us peace and encouragement, but to sharply focus our minds on Advent So I'll ask you to stand once again in honor of the reading of God's Word as we read our text for this morning, which comes from Romans chapter 15, verses 8 through 13. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles in him Will the Gentiles hope? May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. This is the word of God. Let's pray, church. God, as we come to your word, I pray that your truth would pierce our hearts. For the believer, God, as I've prayed already, that you would bind us in our wondering, focus our hearts and minds in obedience, and edify us that we may glorify your name. For the non-believer, Lord, I pray that your truth would pierce their heart, bringing them to faith, that you would gift that to them, draw them to yourself, bringing them unto salvation. God, I pray that you would guard my heart, my mind, my mouth, As I preach your word, protect me from error, that your church may hear your truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, church. So I'm excited to tell you that beginning in January, we will be beginning what will end up being around a a year and a half, if not a little bit more, journey through the book of Romans as I intend to preach us through the book of Romans, verse by verse. I wrote about it in our most recent newsletter. So if you want to grab a copy and see how you can continue to pray for me also as I prepare for that task, I'd encourage you to do so. But I want us to to look here at our text this morning, being verses 8 through 13. 
but I wanted to, to back up a little bit and see because we begin verse 8 with that word of for. So there's, there's a purpose being in what Paul is saying here that has been laid out before that. So let's back ourselves up just a little bit to verse 1 of chapter 15 where we see this, this purpose begin to be laid out. That we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. So here the context is of the unity of the church, how the church relates to one another, how the church comes together to build one another up. And so in that context, Paul lays out that our example for how we are to love one another, encourage one another, exhort one another, to rebuke one another when necessary, our example for that is Christ. And he goes on to say in verse 2, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. So our, our desires change when we come to Christ. We no longer seek to fulfill or please ourselves. Rather, let each of us please his neighbor for the building up of his neighbor. We no longer seek to build ourselves up, to puff ourselves up. Rather, we seek to please one another and grow one another in Christ. Verse 3, for Christ did not please himself. So this is where we see it's rooted in Christ's actions and attributes. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And he goes on to say, so we know we saw that may the God of hope, we see that in verse 13, our text for today, but here he says, may the God of endurance and encouragement. So this, the, the, the attributes of God filling the people of God to live out to the glory of God. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. So unity as the goal here. Right? That together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So here he, we have laid out for us how Christ's example models our standard for how we relate to one another. That we may be unified in glorifying God. So this lays out, again... Clearly, one of the multiple examples we see throughout the New Testament that, that walking with Christ is not a lonely, isolated walk, but we do so together, unified, glorifying God together. God's glory to be our unified goal. So with that, we then see four. I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised. So now we see that context there of our text for today, that as Christ is our example for our unification, well, what example did he lay out for us? And primarily we see first here in verse 8, I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written. So before we go on and break down all those verses there, I want us to look here at verse 8 because there's three particular phrases here in verse 8 alone that I want to break down that we may ponder and savor them. 
Because if we're able to even have the slightest grasp on these truths that we see revealed here in just verse 8, we won't be able to hold back the flood of hope that we have in Christ. So we begin here, this first verse. I tell you that Christ became a servant. So the first thing we must see there and this implication that is laid out for us is that he first was pre-existent, right? So he left one throne, he left his throne on high and became a servant. He stepped down. There is this downward trajectory here. And we see this as Christ reveals himself on the Mount of Transfiguration. He shows himself in his glorified nature. Say, this is what he left behind to step down and to put on human flesh to become a servant. So we see his pre-existent, co-eternal. He was not created at the incarnation, at his birth is not when Christ first came to being, but rather he stepped down. He became a servant. So he was once set on high with God the Father, pre-existent, co-eternal with God the Father, and he stepped down, became a servant at Christmas for us. We see this laid out beautifully for us by Paul in his letter to the Philippians. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, probably the most popular verses on this. Have this mind among yourselves. So another point where he's calling the church to set Christ as the model and the standard. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So what was the reason? What was the purpose of God to send Christ in such a way? And for him to willingly and obediently submit himself to such well, we're given a twofold answer to that here in verse 8. So, why did he become a servant? Christ became a servant first to who? To the circumcised. For what? To show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Well, what are those promises? promises. We look back on the Old Testament. We see the Old Testament law, the prophecies, all everything and, and all the prophets pointing to the people's lack of ability to adhere to the law, to worship God from a heart that is true to him. And we go all the way back. If you trace all the promises back, we go all the way back to who? Abraham. So you can turn if you want to, just make a note of it, to go to Genesis chapter 17. What are these promises? Because uh, from here, everything that God does is in fulfillment of what he promised Abraham in his covenant with Abraham. Genesis chapter 17, starting in verse 4. Thank you, brother. Genesis 17, starting in verse 4. Behold, my covenant is with you. So this is God speaking to Abraham, or at Abram right at this moment. And you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram. 
So first, let's pause. So is a multitude of nations, many nations, not just one, but many nations. Okay, we got that. Now, your name shall no longer be called Abram. So his name initially means exalted father. But your name shall be Abraham, which means father of a multitude. So no longer just exalted father of your family, of your line, but rather now you shall be called father of a multitude. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. This, of course, is our our shadow or or our our prophecy in this, uh, in the fulfillment of the covenant with David, who, of course, was fulfilled, that covenant, which, of course, is fulfilled perfectly in Christ. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout. Well, the patriarch of the patriarchs is Abraham. We also go on to see this in John chapter 1 part of which was referenced in our Advent reading just a while ago. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So what was the problem with the offspring of Abraham, with the circumcised, those who uh, were direct descendants of Abraham, the Jews? They did not rightly believe nor trust in the promises of God, nor walk according to his ways, nor submit to his law. Christ became a servant so that the faithful remnant would see the promises confirmed. But it doesn't stop there. What is the second fold of this twofold purpose of Christ becoming a servant? So, see, first, he became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Verse 9. And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, Christ became a servant not just to the Jews but to the Gentiles as well. Did you notice that promise to Abraham was that he would be a father, and literally that was the purpose of his name change, a father of a multitude of nations. So not just his direct descendants, but a multitude of nations shall glorify God through him. And for the express purpose, so Christ became a servant not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles as well, for the express purpose that they might rightly glorify God. Now, what a radically heretical statement for the misbelieving Jews of the day. The Messiah, a servant to the Gentiles? So it would have been hard enough to get over this idea of the Messiah as a servant, but to then go even a step further and say that he's a servant to the Gentiles? But notice what Paul does after stating that. He quotes directly from Scripture. In order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written. And he first quotes here from 2 Samuel chapter 22, verse 50. 
Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. So that comes from the Old Testament, the Jewish Old Testament, the Hebrew Old Testament classification would be the writings. All right, so we go on next, verse 10. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. So that comes from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 43, which is the law. Okay, we go on. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. Psalm 117, verse 1. So we have, again, the wisdom, or the, which would also be classified in the writings. So we have writings and law that Paul is quoted from here. We go to verse 12. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. So quoting from Isaiah there, that would be the prophets. So we have the law, the prophets, and the writings. The entirety of the Old Testament is what Paul quotes from here, showing God's providential purpose and plan all along. Christ became a servant. Why? To confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. What were the promises? That you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. So these promises are for who? They're for all, Jew and Gentile alike, so that all who believe might rightly worship God in Christ. You go back to verse 4. What did Paul say before getting to our text for today? For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So we're united in our hope in Christ. Jew and Gentile alike. These promises have been indeed God's purposes from the beginning in what he set out in promising and making his covenant with Abraham for this express purpose, that all who believe might rightly worship him. See, church, the incarnation was for the right alignment of our worship. Our worship is perversely aligned toward ourselves. Whether that proof itself out in the music we listen to, the choices we make, how we handle our finances, how we handle our time, how we handle our talents, we naturally utilize all natural gifts of God the Father to worship ourselves and to spurn Him. But this is why the incarnation of Jesus Christ was necessary. That in the flesh, He would defeat the flesh and make atonement for us. Take note this Christmas season at how praise-filled and hopeful our Christmas music is. And let that fill your heart with a rightly aligned purpose of truly worshiping God the Father in the face of Jesus Christ. For this is why Christmas is filled with hope. Despite our perverse worship of self, Christ the Son, second person of the Trinity, co-equal and co-existent with God the Father from all eternity, became a servant to us so that we might be able to rightly worship. Take note also of how easily disjointed our worship can become. 
We can so easily default into self-indulgence, self-worship, self-satisfaction so that we can make even Christmas all about us. When in fact, Christmas is all about us rightly giving all praise and worship to God the Father through Christ the Son. And so what does that produce in us? What is Christ becoming a servant for us to show us the truthfulness and the promises of God the Father to the patriarchs in revealing those things in Christ, what does that produce in us? Verse 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. So before we can break down hope, because that's obviously our, our theme for this week of Advent, and before we can break that down, I want to point out a, a major qualifier here. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. You see, belief precedes hope. Which means no faith in Christ equal no hope. You see, our world will use that word hope. We've heard it time and again. And in fact, it, it makes it so that we have to re-alter the way our brain is wired to perceive and to use that word. Because it's all too often used in the worldly sense of wishful thinking. I hope this will happen. But it is not so for those who are in Christ. Without faith in Christ, there can be no true hope. Without faith in Christ, hope is simply wishful thinking. Which is how we see the world, again, talk about hope. Not so with those who are in Christ. Faith in Christ opens our eyes to the truth, changing hope from wishful thinking to faith filled assurance and conviction. We see this in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, and the linking of faith and hope. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So you see it, how faith in Christ opens our eyes to the truth, changing hope from wishful thinking to faith-filled assurance and conviction. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. We see this further on, or just a little while back in Hebrews, rather. So that was Hebrews 11.1. 1. This is Hebrews 3.6. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence in our boasting in our hope. You see, you don't have confidence in wishful thinking. You don't boast in something that you are wishing to happen. You boast in what you know will happen. And that is the hope of the Christian. So how do we abound in that? How do we abound in hope when our brother is so abruptly taken from us? When our children stray from the faith? When the darkness of the world seems to prevail? How do we abound in hope? I want to show us five ways that we abound in hope that are right here in everything that we've read already. 
First and foremost, we abound in hope by his grace. Unless the Father grants faith, we cannot have hope. Well, what do I do with that? Here's what you do with that. If you have faith in Christ, you have abundant hope. You can face all manner of trials with full assurance, confidence, and hope that he rules over all. If you don't have faith in Christ, repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. Turn from your sin, believe in Jesus Christ, and you will be empowered to abound in hope. How does he, by his grace, help us to abound in hope? What does he do? How does he give us? What does he give us that we may abound in hope in this present life? I point you back to verse 4 of chapter 15. Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. So he, de- he defines for us what was written in former days. It's the scriptures. The law, prophets, and writings are Old Testament. What was written in former days was written for this purpose. That through Endurance. So that's the next thing. How do we abound in hope? Through endurance. What does that mean? Endurance aligns us with the suffering of Christ and reminds us that this world is broken, pointing us to what lay ahead, thereby causing hope to abound within us. Just a few chapters earlier in Romans chapter 8, Paul says this, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son. Consider that. When we ask, how could God's plans be good? How could God be in control of all things when events such as Friday take place? How could God plans be good and how could he be in control of all things when this that or the other takes place he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all Christ became a servant if you want to abound in hope look to the endurance of the cross so on the cross we see That God takes the broken and the evil things of this world and bends them to his own will that he might be glorified. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. We Abound in hope through endurance. How else do we abound in hope? We abound in hope through the encouragement of the scriptures as it's laid out for us there in verse four. Placing our full trust in the promises of God's word is the surest way for hope to abound in our hearts. 
When you feel hopeless, look to the book. Scripture abundantly produces hope within our weary hearts. It keeps us on the well-lit path of truth, preserves us from believing the lies of a sinful fallen world, and provides us with a wellspring of continual hope. How else do we down in hope? Well, as it's been laid out for us, verses 8 through 11, we abound in hope through the right focus of our praise. If your praise is misaligned, you are aimlessly wandering in the world of darkness. So let this message of Christ be like a beacon in the night that is drawing you into harbor. If you are a believer who has strayed from the path of truth and allowed your praise to become contorted back towards yourself, let this be a warning sign to turn back to the path. We abound in hope through the right focus of our praise. So the question we have to ask then is, who am I praising, not just here in this moment or on Wednesday, but who am I praising every day in between? with every action, with every word, with every thought. And realign that praise as has been done for us on the cross and through Christmas. And that's finally the last point I want to make. We abound in hope by looking to Christmas. Okay, pastor, you had me with all the others, but aren't you kind of shoehorning that in a little bit? Not at all. Not at all. Look at verse 12. Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. The root of Jesse has come. He has come to rule us, and he came at Christmas, not with iron fist and drawn sword, but humble servitude, shameful cross, and conquering grave. In this we find hope. It is not only through submission to Christ and the kingdom. It is, it is only through submission to Christ and the kingdom of God that we will find true hope in this life. So submit to hope this Christmas. And may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Let's pray, church. God, as we celebrate Advent hope this Christmas, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would fill us with hope and all joy and peace and believing. that in the spirit of Advent, that we would rightly look back at Christ's first Advent at Christmas, at the Incarnation, and be emboldened in looking at the life of Christ and the death and resurrection of Christ being anchored to look forward in full, assured confidence of the second Advent. Help us to abound in hope, Lord. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.